Welcome to Frictionless Marketing, an exploration of how modern marketers are building their brands, reaching their audiences, and thriving in this post-advertising world. Today, we're excited to have Martha Boudreaux, AARP's Chief Communications and Marketing Officer, joining us for a fascinating conversation. AARP is a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization dedicated to empowering people aged 50 and older to choose how they live as they age, with a strong focus on social security and advocacy. With extensive experience in communications and marketing, Martha has been instrumental in creating a clear and unified brand voice for AARP. She's driven member acquisition and retention, established the consumer experience practice, and oversees AARP's consumer contact centers. Martha is also an accomplished global leader, having served as president of the Mid-Atlantic region and Latin America for Fleischmann Hilliard. A recognized industry speaker and influencer, Martha has received multiple accolades, including induction into the PR Week's National Hall of Fame and being named one of the top 100 women in brand marketing by brand innovators. In this episode, we'll get into AARP's focus on accurately representing and reaching the 50-plus demographic. One of the fastest growing age groups in the country estimated to be responsible for $12.6 trillion of spending power by 2030. Martha discusses AARP's work to address ageism as well, along with how it is an often overlooked element of most DEI strategies. Without further ado, please enjoy Martha Boudreaux. Welcome back to the Frictionless Marketing Podcast. This is Paul Dyer with Lippy Taylor. Lippy Taylor is a digital communications agency that has been named the most outstanding mid-sized PR firm several years now. Um, we specialize in helping brands revitalize their relevance with our frictionless approach to earning brand growth. Now, Martha, you obviously have a lot of history in the PR firm and agency world, but um, have been client-side for a number of years now, and uh, would love to learn more about where you're at with the AARP, but then also what precipitated the change? Oh, hi, Paul. First of all, thanks for having me. It's really a pleasure to be here. Um, and like you said, being out of the agency world, I have enormous respect for what Lippy Taylor does and um, the importance of the perspective that you bring to the market. So yeah, so I was at Fleischmann for 27 years and had a great career there in the Washington office. And um, but AARP had been my client uh, over the course of many years. And when this position of Chief Communications and Marketing Officer was created. And I talked to the incoming CEO about it. It became clear that it was a great move for me after all those years in the agency world to go on the client side. And what intrigued me about it is that AARP, the combination of communications and marketing at AARP made it one of the most complex, challenging, and biggest communications and marketing jobs in the Washington market. Um, and so I jumped at the chance and, you know, it's a, it's a brand, ARP is a brand that has like 90% brand awareness, 
But what we um, what we are really challenged by is making such a big brand, such an iconic brand, be accessible to people across a big chunk of their life to understand what AARP can bring to them. And so that challenge was again something something else that I really wanted to step into. Um, it was a big change from the agency world to the client side, uh, but I feel really fortunate to have. Uh, you know, be in the position I am with such an important brand in our country. Well, I couldn't agree more. And especially with the challenge of taking a brand everybody knows, but then also sort of reinventing how it's relevant to you today. And one thing I'd love to dig into is, so you keep saying communications and marketing, and you do so um, deliberately in that order, as opposed to marketing and communications. Um, my first question, though, is... Um, internally are those separate teams and you oversee both teams or is it one team that does communications and marketing that is such a great question which i've never been asked before so so um under communications and marketing there are probably 30 different disciplines whether it's media relations or direct mail or social media or video, we have the most read magazine in the country, AARP, the magazine, we call it the ATM, has 38 million readers. Um, so we have a whole team of journalists. We have a whole creative department. We have a call centers that take about 400,000 calls a month. Uh, from members and non-members alike who call us to give us their opinions, to ask for help. Um, and we do about 15,000 events a year, both virtual and in person through our 50 state offices. So when we say, you know, are the, the are the departments different? The disciplines are different. And what the reason that my position was created as CCMO is because every one of those channels, every one of those disciplines was highly optimized, but not integrated. And you cannot, I mean, Paul, you know, you cannot have one brand voice if you have the events over on this side, 15,000 a year, talking about this set of issues. And then over here, you've got the brand campaign, which is leading, you know, with this particular messaging. And then, oh, by the way, you have your advocacy organization and then your media relations over here. And so that's the, that cacophony of voices is what creates brand confusion. Mm -hmm. So when Joanne Jenkins, our CEO, stepped in, she knew that we needed to integrate all of those functions with one key objective, which is to create one clear brand voice. And that is my challenge. It was my challenge eight years ago when I started, and we've come a long way, but you ne it never stops, right? And that requires both creating a collaborative environment which speaks to how people manage and what you can expect from each other in culture, as well as process, process that drives integration to be able to identify, okay, if it's March, this is our, uh, our work and jobs theme month. If it's November, this is our caregiving theme month. And all of those channels we have put their shoulder behind those, not exclusively because we do so much year round, but during those theme months, we really put our, our emphasis behind a particular issue that we want to highlight. And so that level of integration and coordination did not exist before the, my, my position was created and my business unit was created. My business unit is called Integrated Communications and Marketing, ICM. 
So it's the integration part. And it's no surprise to you, I'm sure you know this very well, but one of the biggest challenges that CCOs or CCMOs or any combination of those of those letters, um, the biggest challenge is integration. How do you integrate? You, if you're the CCO, how are you integrating with your colleague who's the CMO? You know, whose priorities uh, take the lead? You know, where are you putting the money? Where are you putting the budget? You know, because budget follows priorities. And how you how do you bring that all together? So although the, um, for my position at AARP, it is an enormous swath of communications and marketing disciplines, we are all absolutely clear. We have one brand voice that we're driving towards. And we are integrating all the time to make sure that the content that's being created in our studios and is on our YouTube channel is also being highlighted in our social channels, you know, and that if there's an uh, article in our magazine, you know, we have uh, content on social and from our studios that support it. So it's a, it's, it's, it's a challenge. It's a, it's, it's a great organization with a lot of issues to talk about that make a big difference in people's lives. Well, and you're obviously succeeding in the role. I mean, you think about, I think the average tenure for CMOs is two years these days, and you know, CCOs are somewhere in the same you know um, ballpark. You've been at AARP for eight and a half years. You uh, just mentioned 27 years with Fleischman Hillard, and you know, um, progressively bigger leadership roles. Um, so, if you think about kind of what it takes to succeed from an integration standpoint, process standpoint, all those things. Cause of course everybody, they want us to hear about the big idea. They're always like, Oh, what's the big idea? What was the, you know, but a lot of times it is what you're saying. It's the behind the scenes. It's getting people in the right roles, working together, process, talent to task mapping. Like, is it the same at a Fleischman as it is at an AARP? Like, are there things that you can transfer that you learned at Fleischman or was it really like kind of starting over career two when you went in house? Yeah. So at Fleischman, I, you know, I started at Fleischman when I was an account executive and Fleischman was growing, uh, was beginning to really accelerate its growth at a time when my career was, was growing as well. And I was lucky that in that moment in joining Fleischman Hillard, I found early in my career what a lot of people search for, for their whole career. I found a company that was growing, that was giving me opportunity, whose values I shared. Who, and who had great potential for me personally. And so I stayed. And when I left, I was a regional president. So I had our, uh, um, uh, our office in Mexico City, our Latin American affiliates reporting into me, as well as uh, about six or seven offices in the U.S. as well, including Washington, of course, which is a flagship office. Um, so what I learned at Fleischman is, uh, and amongst many other things, is A, how to grow talent, right? How to attract, retain, and grow talent. It's all about talent. How to manage complex, uh, a a complex network of offices that each had their own growth targets, that had their own opportunities in their own markets. And in so doing, you know, ultimately the secret sauce in the agency business for scaling, and I don't have to tell you this, you have to have the right people, 
You have to know where growth is going to come from and you have to believe in and support your people to grow that. Of course, there's lots of other things. You know, you have to have good counselors who your clients trust. You know, you have to be able to bring value on a regular basis, all of those things. But the ability to manage a large, complex organization is something that is fundamental to my role at AARP. Now, I have experts in performance marketing. I have experts in magazine publishing. I have experts in social. And just like at Fleischman, I have to be able to identify where the talent is and then support them and believe in them and give them the reign to do their work at the highest level possible. And by the way, in terms of a big idea, you are right. So often we're always searching for the silver bullet. What's the big idea? What's the big breakthrough? And sometimes you find those things, but but they don't all come from where you think. Sometimes they come from people at a more junior level in the organization. So that means you have to be able, you have to listen to your, your staff. You have to give them the psychological safety to speak up and raise issues and raise ideas you know, that a lot of times people don't if they're in a hierarchical organization. Um, but there is, you know, there are big ideas out there, but sometimes there's like second tier great ideas that can be scaled into big ideas over time. Um, so it's a long way of saying you got to have the people, you got to be able to manage complexity, you've got to have a culture of collaboration, and then you have to have, you do have to have process for integration. It's all those things. Well, and, and you make it sound so simple, although I know that in, in reality, it's it's much more complicated than that. Um, so it's interesting, you bring up the silver bullet, because I feel like um, of all the briefs we've seen in the last, let's say, since, you know, kind of COVID, you know, um, time, it's at least half of them, if not three quarters of them, um, that include Gen Z somewhere as the silver bullet. And... Um, I'm not really sure how all brands decided to become so obsessed with a very small slice of young Americans, but it does seem to be the case right now. So what's your thought and what's your response to that when you obviously represent, um, basically you speak for many of America's you know, 50 plus uh, consumers? Well, we have 38 million members, but we speak on behalf of 100 million plus people over the age of 50. That's who we advocate for is 100 million people. Um, couple things here. I think that brand marketers have been historically obsessed with youth because of one completely uh, uninformed belief that you develop brand loyalty in your 20s which is just simply not true. So they think, okay, fine. Like if we can get everybody to drive our kind of car when they're 25, um, then they're going to be with us until, you know, they stop driving at 90. Or if they'll just buy this one kind of lipstick, that's all they're going to buy over their whole life. It's not true. I can tell you this, what I could afford when I was 25 is not what I can afford now. My tastes are different. From a clothing standpoint, my style is different. The kind of vehicle I want to drive is different. The kind of food I eat is different. And so to believe that you have to capture this young, young audience because they're going to be loyal to you for their entire lives is ridiculous and outdated. And that needs to be put to the side. Um, the fact is, it's the 50 plus market 
that has more uh, more disposable income, right? That are looking to try new brands because people are working. This is a big thing, um, Paul. This th- this is critical because people are working longer than ever. A third of the people over fifty are still working. Uh, I want to say a third of sixty five plus are working. Either they want to or they have to. They have more disposable income. They still need clothes. They still want to upgrade their car. They're completely immersed in technology. That's a big fallacy is that the 50 plus don't use technology. Well, that's ridiculous. You know, I mean, the 50 plus grew up with technology. Now, when you get when you get to people like my mother, who's 94, forget about it. She's not interested in learning new technology, but neither does she need to. But when you turn 50, I want, I want to pause on this part, point for a moment because this speaks to brand consumption. When you turn 50, assuming you have access to healthcare uh, and you take advantage of it, by the way, you do have to go to the doctor, but I mean, you know, assuming you live a fairly healthy lifestyle, have access to healthcare, you could live to hundred. The fastest growing age group in our country is 85 plus, And the second fastest growing is hundred plus. So if you knew at 50 that you were going to live for 50 more years, how long would you work, right? Would you go back to school? Who says school has to be over when you're 21 years old or 25 years old, right? What would you do differently? But one of the things over and over is people are working longer, so they have more income and they're spending it. And just back to the question you asked about brand marketers, um, they're, they're looking at Gen Z at a moment in their life when they, they're just the beginning of their earning potential. A lot of times they do not have families. They're not buying for children, right? They're not buying their first house when they're very young like that. And so they're looking at the wrong life stage for the big consumption patterns. One last thing. If you're a brand marketer, you're saying, okay, how are we going to sell more product, more services now? Not 25 years from now, but right now. So this is my appeal. Look at the data. Who is spending the money on whatever product, whatever service you have? Let the data guide you to where the consumers are. Do not make assumptions based on what you think about lifestyles. I think that's really a powerful point. And in particular, we do a lot of work with pharmaceutical companies, you know, and that's sort of the the obvious, like sort of, you know, uh, I guess, stereotypical place that you would expect them to be more focused on an aging population. Um, And even there, sometimes we run into resistance these days. Um, But, you know, that opens the door to this conversation, which we have brought up in, you know, speaking with many pharmaceutical companies about influencer marketing. And influencer marketing is oftentimes cast through a lens of, you know, you're reaching basically 20 something, you know, single lifestyle type of a person with the idea that they are in some way aspirational to a broader marketplace, right? Um, Now, I've heard a lot about how influencer marketing um, in the, you know, over 50 population has evolved. I would imagine you know more about it than I do and than than most of the people listening do though. So can you educate us a little bit on the state of influencer marketing for 50 plus? It's the same thing as it is for other generations. You know, people that speak to you where you are in your life, 
what's important to you. Um, the lifestyle is a big thing. So we talk about the 50 plus, but I want to go back to something about, and, and influencer marketing speaks. If you're going to live half your life over 50, it's not really about age. It becomes, where are you in your life stage? You still working, not working? Do you have grandchildren? Do you not have grandchildren? Are you married, not married? You know, I mean, uh, you know, where, where are you? And that drives your consumption patterns. In terms of influencer marketing, yes, people want to see themselves in all kinds of marketing and influencing influencer marketing would be the same. But if you're a 60-year-old grandmother, I think the average age of a grandmother is in the late 40s, believe it or not, for the first time is in the late 40s. So if you're a grandmother and you're 60, you know, you're looking at influencers that are marketing products that are for perhaps your, your daughter or your granddaughter, right? And you're looking at the people who are, who are marketing the products that you want to buy. In terms of life stage, and um, nostalgia is very big for all generations, by the way. You know, influencer marketing in terms of on the brand side, that's important to have influencers that can speak in an aspirational way about lifestyle and things that matter to you and your background. So we have uh, we have a, a growing presence on TikTok, and the number of fifty plus on TikTok is growing enormously because people find influencers there. And that big ones, little ones, you know, product oriented, lifestyle oriented that speak to who they are and where they are in their life stage. So I don't think that there's a bright line between, okay, we understand influencer marketing for millennials, but boy, this whole thing about influencer marketing for the 50 plus, like, I don't get it. <laughs> there's no <laughs> principles. The principles remain the same. It's about finding the right people who are speaking to that audience. And they are absolutely out there. We have found that over and over and over again. Well, I, I love the emphasis on life stage. Um, also, because in you know in a DEI context, inclusive marketing context, um, intersectionality is one of the most important things to understand. Right? Is it's not just that you're over fifty; it's that you're over fifty and all these other things that define you, you know, um, as a person and et cetera. But life stage does seem to be something that's remarkably common, meaning consistent, you know, across whether it's ethnicities, whether it's geographies, whether it's, you know, generations, you know, like today's millennials that confounded everybody 10 years ago, turns out they're actually hitting the same exact milestones <laughs> in very, very similar ways as their parents did, et cetera, right? Um, so life stage is a really interesting, I think, way of recasting that. So speaking of which, you said you're, you know, you're driving one voice, one brand voice for AARP, right? One consistent integrated strategy. Um, the way I understand it um, is this, you know, as it's articulated in your new campaign is uh, the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Um, does that apply all the way to Gen Z or like, what can you talk to us about that strategy? And as you think about this idea of you know, life stages, what does it mean that the younger you are, the more you need AARP. So a couple of years ago, um, probably four years ago now, we were doing research in the in, for our con, in the consumer experience area. We have a very developed consumer experience um, capability, and 
consumers told us when we asked them, what role do you want AARP to play in your life? Especially if you're going to be a member for half your life, what role do you want us to play? And it was their language. They said to us very clearly, we want you to be a wise friend and a fierce defender. Their words. And so really good words. Yeah, isn't it? It's really powerful. And as soon as that came through in the research, all of us were like, yes, that's it. That's exactly it. Because a wise friend, um, you know, in those life stages that you go through, you're gonna, you're probably gonna be a caregiver or give, you're either gonna give care or get care over the course of half your life. How do you do that? What are the decisions you need to make? Who can I turn to to help me navigate that role in my life? What about saving and retiring? And how do I factor in social security? And gosh, Medicare seems complicated. You know, my dad's about to apply. I really need to figure this out so I can help him make with that decision. All of these are areas that AARP provides information and where we can ser- serve that role as a wise friend. And as a fierce defender, as I said earlier, our job every day, not only in Washington, but in every state capital across the country, is to advocate for people 50 plus, all of them, for what makes their lives more um, uh, would allow them to live with dignity and confidence, you know, financially, as well as with health care, caregiving. You know, we have um, a lot of fraud education work. And so we show up as a fierce defender from an advocacy standpoint. Um, so this wise friend and fierce defender. So we took that, what we call our consumer commitment. We took that and we said, you know what? If people are going to live half their lives over 50, and we know they need healthcare. We know they need financial security. And oh, by the way, they want to have fun along the way. So it's what we call health, wealth, and happiness. Then they really need AARP to help them navigate those life stages and those transitions as a wise friend and a fierce defender. And really, if you're worried about saving for retirement, you better start worrying about it when you're about 50. And your healthcare. You know, usually when you hit 50, you're like, wow, like my left knee really hurts. Like, I wonder what's happening here, right? I thought that was, I thought that started happening at 40. (laughs) Exactly. So, so, and so AARP is there and the positioning that again, appealed to members and non-members alike was that the younger you are, the more you need AARP to help you live half your life with security financially and healthcare and, and, and with, with happiness. And And it makes sense in the context of like, it's almost like a 401k. The more you put in early, the more you get out over the full extent of the program, you know? Exactly. So we blended being a wise friend and a fierce defender with recognition. People live half their life over 50 and they want to be secure with, through the lens of health, wealth, and self. That's such a powerful and simplistic statement. You'll live half your life over 50. It really does recast that as as opposed to being sort of this is the last chapter, you know, as you're halfway through. I hope you have a plan. Uh, (laughs) So 
I do want to give um, us a plug here. So we will we will put a link to this in the show notes for our listeners. But AARP did recently put out a guide to understanding the 50 plus consumer. And some of the um, stats that you've been mentioning here have been included in that guide. One of which that really jumped off the page to me is that one in five people 50 plus have decided not to purchase from a brand because they saw age stereotypes in advertising. Um, obviously. So the, to the point of our conversation earlier, I feel like we hear all about the brands that Gen Z doesn't want to, to you know, <laughs> to, to buy things from. It's really, I think, an important reminder that, by the way, this applies to everybody. Um, if you don't share our values, we don't want to patronize your brand. Um, but can you maybe um, share a little bit of maybe some examples or just some insight around when they say they don't want to purchase from a brand that exhibits age stereotypes in their marketing, what does that mean? Like, what what's an example of that? Uh, healthcare companies that depict uh, potential customers, as they would call them, in dependent settings, right? Mm-hmm. Wearing beige clothing, sitting on a bench. They depict uh, any kind of healthcare products through a a sense of uh, dependency, right? And people are in healthcare settings. They're being helped to walk by somebody else, which perpetuates this ageist uh, belief that as you age, you become completely dependent almost right away. If you say to a 35-year-old, oh, I'm 60, they're going to be like, oh, my gosh. Right? And then you get to 60, and you're like, wow, I feel like I'm 45 years old. And so- There's all these preconceived notions. And when marketers show imagery that perpetuates those ageist um, attitudes or misunderstandings, that creates a problem. And, and, you know, Paul, marketing and communications, both leads and follows society's um, uh, opinions. And when you are 30 and you look at advertising that depicts people who are older, whatever that means, over 50, over 60, over 70, whatever, dependent as diminished, you know, everything's about losing memory, everything's about not being able to having good mobility, then you fear that. You fear that as you get older. So brands that use imagery that is not in keeping with the reality of what it is to age today, whether it's fashion or car, no, not automotive as much, but um, certainly healthcare, pharmaceuticals, those industries really have to be careful. Um, Insurance is another big one uh, that needs to uh, be very careful of, of really driving preconceived stereotypes of what is it to age. Imagery is a very big thing. If I could pause for one second and say that for the last five or six years we've worked with Getty Images, mm-hmm. completely overhaul their collection of images of all kinds, still video, other assets on aging. They have the Disrupt Aging Collection, which shows people who are act aging actively. Um, yes, of course, they have healthcare settings as well. I mean, they have this enormous repository of images, but they were saying early on in the project that they were having a hard time finding photos. They had to kind of re, re, uh, refill their inventory of photos of people 70-ish with friends. Oh my goodness. It, it, you know, that because you know what? Preconceived notions are when you get to 70, like how many friends could you have, right? Which is ridiculous. 
People are working into their 70s. They're biking through Europe. They're, you know, they're they're gardening. They're doing all kinds of stuff. Um, and we have to have the images available so that marketers, when they're addressing that market, can use the images that accurately portray what the lifestyle is and well, not makes, preconceived notions. Makes complete sense. I think it's an important reminder. And it also might be the situation where if you have an, a whole account team working on a program that isn't of that age range and doesn't experience it directly daily, then you need to think about how you're getting you know that sort of incorporated into the thinking. But it's funny, you just reminded me of there was a... Uh, a viral uh, story a couple of months ago from the last Spider-Man where people were critical of them having cast uh, Marissa Tomei as Aunt May in Spider-Man mm -hmm. saying that basically they had like made her look too young. Right. And the re response was Marissa Tomei is 58 years old. This is what 58 looks like. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And you know, the, you know, when we talk about DEI, and so often age is completely missing and especially in the marketing and advertising world. I mean, you would not go into an agency meeting with a brief that focused on uh, the Hispanic audience or the black audience with all white men, right? Right. You just wouldn't do it. I mean, because they're gonna say like, okay, so who can relate to the market that we're focused on? So why do agencies go in when it's focused on an older demographic and the oldest person in the room is 28 years old. At 28, you don't have a life ex experience to understand what it is to be a 65-year-old who's purchasing technology, you know, or, or, or whatever the product is, it doesn't matter. So age diversity in the industry, in our industry, is as important as any other form of diversity. Well, and to your point earlier about the 35-year-old that sort of can't even picture what it will be like when they're 50. The 28-year-old version of that person thought 35 was really old. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, all right. So I think those are really good points and important, you know, in all ways that we make sure that we're representing viewpoints equally um, and directly from people who have lived experience of, you know, the demographic we're trying to reach and influence and support and whatever that is. So, um, so, Martha, I want to thank you for your time. It feels like this, um, our half hour flew by here today, um, but I really enjoyed speaking with you, and I think our listeners are going to get a lot out of this. Thank you, Paul. I appreciate you including my perspective and for your interest in, in AARP. All right. Thanks, as always, for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, why not share with your friends and colleagues on LinkedIn? Don't forget to follow the show on Instagram at Lippy Taylor. That's L-I-P-P-E-T-A-Y-L-O-R. And to learn more about us and our agency, visit us at LippyTaylor.com. Thank you for listening to Frictionless Marketing. If you enjoyed this episode, you might want to check out Paul's best-selling book, Friction Fatigue, What the Failure of Advertising Means for Future-Focused Brands. In Friction Fatigue, Paul explains to readers why advertising is broken and provides a frictionless marketing framework to help build your brand in an era where advertising is no longer the answer. You'll learn how to protect your business against competitors and lead the pack with fresh marketing strategies that will help you prepare for a future where the consumer rules. 
Friction Fatigue is now available on Amazon and as a book on tape on audible.com. Thanks again for listening.